0: Let me read a verse that is familiar to you all from Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, a victorious warrior, he will exult over you with joy, he will be quiet in his love, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. O Father, as we come to you today to know that you rejoice over us, As we look at ourselves and we become introspective, we realize that there is nothing in us that should cause you joy. And yet we know it is because that we have received the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and have been cleansed by His blood if we are His children. And it is because of what He has done for us that we have been made the children of God and and the joy of the Lord is manifested in our lives. Father, may we reflect that joy around us to all of those who are part of our environment. Lord, so many people who are called Christians are so negative and uh, give no sense of the joy that comes through knowing the Lord. I pray that will not be characteristic of us, but that we will constantly polish the mirror of our lives so that the light of the glory of Christ might be seen in us by our families and our loved ones and our friends and our co-workers, all of those who are in our social milieu. Father, I thank you for your presence here this morning and for each of these men and women and pray your special blessing in each life. You know the needs of each individual, I trust you meet those needs. And Father, I pray that you will teach us from your word this day, that our hearts will be clay tablets upon which you can write the truth that we will not only hear, but which we will act upon. We will live. And we'll thank you for what you do and, and for your presence in the service that is concurrent and for all the other Sunday school classes. Bless according to your great divine plan, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. In that chapter, there is the story of a titanic battle that we're told was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And last time, uh, I mentioned the fact that there is some division amongst the scholars as to where this forest of Ephraim was located. And part of the reason for the question is the fact that there aren't very many forests in Israel today at all. And so it's, you can't, it's not like Sherwood Forest in England, you know, where Sherwood Forest in England has been there for a thousand, well, it's been there forever. It's one of the few left forests left in England. What's interesting is that When the Celts lived in England, it was 95% forested. Today, it's 5% forested. But Sherwood Forest is one of those forests that's still left. And so the mythology of Robin Hood, you know, and all of that, you you go there and they actually have Robin Hood tourist traps there for you. (laughs) But the question is, where was the Forest of Ephraim? And I pointed out to you last time that the um, primary locations were probably right up in here, which many scholars believe is most likely the location, or over here on somewhere in this this region in here. Because this is the tribal territory of Ephraim. So the question is, why would a forest over here in the tribal territory of Gad be called the Forest of Ephraim? They say it's because there was a a contingent of Ephraimites that had moved over there and therefore it got called the Forest of Ephraim. Well, whatever the case is, um, this titanic battle was fought in the central portion of Israel in a forest. The battle was between the supporters of King David and those of the rebel Absalom. What is interesting, interesting is that although the scripture does not specifically state this, there had to be divine intervention to bring about the result in this battle. Because the scripture makes it clear that Absalom's forces were much larger than the forces of David. And even though David did have certain advantages on his side, which we elucidated at at an earlier time, the overall advantage was with Absalom, and yet Absalom's forces were routed. God was with the army of David. How many men were involved in this battle? Tens of thousands. That's why I call it a titanic battle. I mean, it, it, it involved large numbers of people altogether. The only statistic that's given to us in the passage is the one that tells us that 20,000 of those in the army of Absalom died in the forest as a result of the battle and as a result of the falling off of cliffs and hanging in trees and other kinds of things which occurred. Well, we know from the implication that most of the Israeli troops ran back to their homes So, 20,000 probably didn't even constitute, at the very most, half. And even though David's force was smaller, it certainly involved at least 10,000, maybe more so. We're talking about a large number of men involved in this battle. 20,000 died in a single day of that battle. You may remember that in the United States, before it was the United States, there was a battle. You, You all know about the American Revolution which began in 1775 and the fighting was over by about 1781. And this single battle killed four times as many as Americans died in the entire Revolutionary War. And Not only that, most of us are familiar with the Battle of Iwo Jima in World War II and how the military would not allow the newsmen to report the deaths because they were afraid it would discourage America back at home. 7,500 Americans died in the Battle of Iwo Jima. This is almost three times that many that died. So we're talking about a lot of individuals here. And and this is therefore not just a small little battle fought in a corner somewhere. It's a battle for the history of Israel. In many ways for the history of God's plan of salvation. Because Messiah will come through David but not through Absalom. What we find is that Absalom with his army dissolving around him, he took flight as well on his mule And we noted the passage tells us that as he fled, he encountered a group of David's troops and trying to escape from them post-haste, the mule went under a tree and he got himself caught by his head and hair uh, in a tree. And there uh, hanging helplessly, Joab (laughs) did him in, you know, and killed him in spite of the fact that David had clearly said, spare the young man's life. Well, let's read at verse 19 of, 2 Samuel chapter 18. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry the news this day, but you shall carry the news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed, to Joab and ran. Now, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. Then David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked and behold, a man was running by himself. And the watchman called and told the king. The king said, if he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, this one also brings good news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is a good man and comes with good news. We all like good news, don't we? That's why the message of Christ is called the gospel of of Christ, the good news. Ahimaaz is the son of Zadok the priest. (laughs) And he wanted to carry the news of the victory back to Mahanaim, to David in the city where he was housed. He had served as courier before. He had been the one who would, who would take the message that Hushai would, would give to the priest. The priest would then relate it to his son, and the son would run off to tell David what was going on in Jerusalem. Remember the spy system that was set up. And so Ahimaaz was accustomed to being a courier and running back and forth, and, and he felt he ought to be the one to carry the message of the victory to, to David. This seemed logical to him, but we discovered that Joab boxed at the idea. And the main reason is because Ahimaez and Joab have to, two different ideas about the purpose of the message being carried. Ahimaaz wanted to carry the message to David so that he could cushion the blow that David would receive when he heard that Absalom was dead. Joab, on the other hand, didn't want Ahimeaz to run, because you'll notice in the passage, he said, I don't want you to run because the king's son is dead. Well, what does that have to do with it? Because he knew that David would interpret the coming of Ahimeaz as the coming of good news. He knew that David trusted Himeaz and that Ahimaaz was a man whom, whom David really cared about. And he was afraid that David's hopes would be elevated, therefore, and then when the real news came, he would fall that much further down when the shock of the truth sank into David. So what Joab did was dismiss Ahimaaz's request. He says, no, you're not going to run. You over there, Cushite, you run. And you take the message. The Kushite was one of Joab's armor bearers. Kushite. Kush was the name of an ancient country. If you go to what is today modern Sudan, south of Egypt and west of Ethiopia, there there is what is physically one of the largest countries in all of Africa today in terms of its modern borders. But modern Sudan has some of the descendants of the people who used to live there. Ancient Sudan, part of it was at one time controlled by Egypt. There was a kingdom there at one time called the kingdom of Nubia. There was also the kingdom of Kush. And so there was this, 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 uh, it wasn't as advanced as the Egyptian civilization, but it was an advanced civilization that existed in Kush. Part of it, part of the borders of Kush actually slopped over into what is modern Ethiopia today. The people who lived there and who live there today are generally referred to as the Nilotic people, people of the Nile River. They're dark-skinned, but they are not Bantus. They're not part of the standard uh, Bantu or black population that occupies so much of Africa today. They're very much different in their physical build. They're very thin, very tall uh, people. They're they're long-legged and they run like the wind, even today. Uh, Long distance runners often come from that part of the world. And so, this guy was probably the fastest guy in his army. He says, you take the message. He knew that if the Kushite took off, the message would arrive there sooner rather than later. Now, if the battle had been fought here, up in, in here, if this was where the forest was located where the battle was fought. Maname, which is located right about over here, would have been maybe 10, 12 miles, as the crow flies a little bit longer, of course, running down into ravines and up around. And and so, what, 10, 12 miles to somebody who's kind of pretty good at uh, cross-country running? He'd arrived the same day, just a few hours later. If the battle was fought over here, however, the distance was much further, 35 to maybe 40 miles Uh, distance, which would be quite a trot in a day. Uh, As most of you probably know, uh, the uh, California missions, uh, the chain of 21 missions was set up and the distance between the missions was supposed to be one day's horse ride, easy horse ride, 30 miles roughly. But if you're running on your feet, of course, you're not going to travel 30 miles as quickly as a horse travels 30 miles. So, you know, 40 miles would be pretty well stretching it for a day, wouldn't it? But anyway, I, the fact that in this passage we're told that Ahimez ran by the way of the plain kind of may give us a little bit of insight here that either the battle was fought over here or the our battle was fought very near the Jordan. And that the Kushite may have just lit out cross-country running this way, whereas Ahimez took the plain down here then cut up the, the river canyon and may have given him a little bit of advantage. If it was fought over here, it could be that the Kushite, you know, took a kind of a longer way in the hills and the Himesh got to the plain quicker where he could run in the flat plain. Remembering now, the Jordan Valley, where, right about the area we're talking about, would be about seven, um, seven 750 feet below sea level. So lots of oxygen there as you're running, you know. So that wouldn't be a, a problem, especially if you're a Kushite. Who, who may have come from the Ethiopian area where it's higher and, and uh, was used to more difficult running than that. Who knows? But whatever the case is, Ahimez kept pressing and pressing and pressing uh, Joab says, but let me run. I want to run too. I don't care if there's no reward. I, I want to run as well. Joab says, what for? I've already sent the message with the Kushite, and there's no possible reward in it for you, so what's the point? Just stay here. Run some other time. I need to run. Okay. He finally gave him permission. He just bugged him. I guess it's the squeaking wheel syndrome, right? You keep squeaking long enough, they'll give you the oil that you need. And the scripture seems to indicate that uh, Hemez knew the terrain better, and therefore he passed up the (laughs) Cushite and arrived first. Now, David had not been allowed to go with his army. We studied that. His men didn't want David to go with the army because even if they were victorious, if David were killed on the battlefield, what would have been the point of the whole battle? So they made David stay behind in Maanaim. But David was too anxious about what was going on. He wasn't with the battle, he he wasn't with his troops, he didn't know what was happening, and here he was miles away uh, in the dark, you know, no radio, no telegraph, no internet, no other way to, to get the message. And so he was too anxious to just go about his normal routine. I'm king, I better do kingly things. Now he just sat there at the gate waiting for the message to come. Now the implication is that he sat in the shade between the gates. It was very common in the ancient world for a wall, when it came together like this, for you to build a, a large tower where the gate is at. And frequently the tower protrudes into the city and outside the city walls. And frequently there would be an outer gate that opened and closed and an inner gate to open and close. And frequently the, the, over that was covered. And part of the reason for two gates is that you could put a bunch of men in, in that area in there and protect them from anybody who happened to get on top of the wall, an enemy who might shoot down. And if they broke through the gate, The people trying to get in would be overwhelmed by these people in that small anteroom, if you will, killing those trying to get through to break through the inner gate. But anyway, David apparently was sitting in that area between the two gates. Typically, in those days, where a city had any amount of room around it, where a watchman could see in many directions, all day long, the city gates sat open. So commerce could go in and out of the city. You don't want to have to open and close the gates every time somebody went out, you know. So the gates sat open. So you have to have a watchman. You have to have a gatekeeper. So that if the watchman says, oh, an army coming, close the gates, he'd have time to get the gates closed. So if you can picture this, the gates are open. David is sitting in the anteroom between the inner and the outer gates. It's covered over for, sun, for shelter, so he's sitting in the shade. And he's within earshot of the watchman. The watchman up on top, standing on the roof, could look out there, and the watchman would cry down below to the gatekeeper any message because he had to warn the gatekeeper if the gates needed to be closed. And so there is David sitting in that uh, particular situation, waiting anxiously for the message to come. David was a man of faith. He believed God, but at the same time, the decision, the event was so momentous that he had a certain amount of anxiety. You know, the scripture says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. But it's one thing to be admonished to not be anxious. It's another thing to not be anxious. (laughs) There's a certain amount of worry that's native to all of us. And even though we trust God, we're still uncertain about the future. David didn't have a, crystal ball. (laughs) Perish, not a crystal ball. David didn't have any insight into the future, other than the fact that God had promised to be with him, and so he knew that to to be true. And so he sat within earshot of the watchman waiting. He knew that if a single runner was sighted, almost always that's good news. Multiple runners, all running with panic in their eyes, bad news probably, you know. Fleeing from the enemy who is uh, pursuing them, trying to get inside the city before the enemy got there. And so a single runner most likely would mean good news. What's interesting about this is, uh, what does this tell us here where it says the watchman is looking down, and in verse 27, the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of a Ahimeaz. <laughs> How many people can you identify by their running? They're too far away to see who they are, but you can identify them. And Ahimehaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and and your servant, meaning the guy who's running behind me and me, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. (laughs) Ahimehaz, hmm, remember, your dad's a priest. And then the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And Behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, let the Lord... My lord, the king, received good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept, And thus he said, as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Certainly one of the more emotional verses in all of Scripture. David, of course, was very impatient to hear the news. And so I think that when it was said, I think the runner is Ahimez, that David got out of his seat And he went out of the gate and walked in the direction of Ahimez in order to get the news even sooner. As soon as Ahimez got within earshot of David, he cried out, Shalom! Which in Hebrew is the universal word that all is well. All is well. And then as he got closer, he panted out the rest of the news, telling the story of the great victory. And all the time, David is thinking, come on, come on. What about Absalom? <laughs> I want to know about Absalom. And as soon as Ahimehaz finished reporting the victory, David's first question was what about the young man, Absalom? Almost as if he didn't hear what Ahimez had to say. Almost as if the victory was meaningless. He wanted to know what happened to Absalom. Ahimaez, let's put it uh, gently here, obscured the truth. His purpose was to soften the blow. He wanted David to know that something was going on when he left, which was not true. He already knew that Absalom was dead. But he wanted him to think that something was going on which could imply that harm had come to Absalom so that David would have enough um, bolstering, maybe, so that when the news really arrived that Absalom was dead, that he wouldn't just plummet into the slew of despond. This was Ahimeaz's purpose. Ahimezas loved David. And he had great concern for him as a man and as his king. Unfortunately, his method in showing that concern was misguided. It would, in my opinion, have been better. It would have been preferable if he had gone to David and maybe broken out in tears and hugged David or something. Of course, he was his king, a little hard to do, I suppose. But, but to, to try to get the news to David as softly, compassionately as possible. And then trust God to help David work through the issue. But he doesn't do that. And as a result, the Cushite comes running up and just shocks David down to his sandals. I think the Cushite believed that David would be glad to hear that not only was a great victory, but that that loathsome enemy is dead. The Cushite is a foreigner. Cushite is not a native Hebrew. Maybe he was late on the scene. Maybe he didn't know uh, David's compassion for his son. We, We don't know. And so when David asks about him, he relates it in a triumphant and a callous way. Oh, that all of your enemies were as that young man. Not news David wanted to hear not gentle, not understanding, this word concerning Absalom shattered David, just like hitting a mirror with a hammer. David disintegrated virtually before the eyes of the Cushite and Himeas into deep emotional distress. He, of course, knew, he knew in his head that God had ruled, and we read the passage in Deuteronomy, that a rebellious unrepentant son was to die. <laughs> he also knew that if Absalom had had the opportunity Absalom would have killed him even though he was his father. Yet David's reaction I think was triggered by three factors. These are not necessarily all the factors, but three which seem to stick out to me. First of all, he knew that Absalom's character had been partly shaped by the way he had raised the young man and that he had failed to discipline him. He had failed to train up a child in the way that he should go. He had not done what he ought to have done. He had not been in his life and therefore he felt he bore some of the guilt for his son's death. Secondly, he thought, oh Lord, I sinned horribly against Uriah and Bathsheba and before all of Israel, and I was worthy of death because adultery and murder were both to be punished by death according to the law of ancient Israel. And yet God had shown him mercy. I believe that he hoped that God would do the same for Absalom. Thirdly, David hoped, I believe, for an opportunity to make up for his failures, to show Absalom that he really loved him, that he had developed a genuine love for his son, in spite of the fact that his son had become his enemy. And he wanted to show mercy to him because he wanted to bring about reconciliation between himself and Absalom, and hopefully between Absalom and his God. Because, as we have noted before, there is no reference anywhere in Scripture that Absalom had any relationship or paid any attention to God whatsoever. I think it's important for us to, and and I'm sure this is true of all of us, but just to reiterate it, that we, we all realize that just because Israel was the people of God doesn't mean they were the people of God in their individual hearts. And that probably vast numbers of Israel throughout history died in their sins and have been cast into outer darkness. And David didn't want that. To whatever extent he understood this. We we know David writes in the Psalms about Sheol and about being put in the grave. And and his his understanding is not our understanding because the New Testament, of course, hadn't yet been written. David's reaction, as described in the last verse there of that particular chapter, seems to indicate that he had really come to love his son. In a true, godly way. Because we see him say, let me read that last verse again. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son? Now, I realize that in moments of grief, people can say things that they don't really mean. And I realize also that David could could have felt that way because he felt guilty. But I believe that in this was a measure of genuine love. And as Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. I think that was part of it. It may not have been all of it but I think it was part of it. He genuinely would have wished to die on behalf of his son that his son might live. Not only because of his grief, not only because of his guilt, but because he had a God-like love in his heart for this young man. For anyone to really genuinely be willing to give his life for another, thoughtfully give it, I don't mean... You know, accidentally or in a moment, you know, like the Secret Service are supposed to throw themselves in front of a bullet if it's being f- shot at the president. They may not even like the president. Of course, most presidents would probably d- wouldn't want secret servicemen of the opposite party <laughs> uh, protecting them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the famous quip. Remember when uh, <laughs> Ronald Reagan had been shot and they were going to take him and operate and he says, I hope you doctors are all Republicans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I think there was a genuine love on the part of David that he genuinely would have given himself for his son if that had been possible. Just as as Paul would later say, oh, that I would die and and be cast out if Israel would be saved. Let's read on the next chapter. The story continues here. Then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are, hu- who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. And the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have, co- you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you, by hating those who love you, for you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise and go out speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord... If you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. This will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king arose and sat in the gate when they, when they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. Then all the people came before the king. Those of us who have spent a considerable amount of time reading in the Psalms, and I'm sure that's every one of you, You know, David was a man of great emotion. He could be a man who would stand and praise God Almighty, and the next minute he would say, kill these enemies of yours, oh God, cast them into outer darkness, you know. And we see in this passage that he allowed his grief to so overwhelm him that he appeared to care about and for no one and nothing else. The army had been jubilant, they had won a great victory against overwhelming odds. And they were coming back triumphant. And you could just hear them, you know. They were shouting and singing. And many of them certainly were praising God for the victory that they had won that day. And they knew that their, their, their King David should be overjoyed that they had won such a great victory. But their joy turned to gloom when they heard that David wasn't at all enthused. That David was in deep mourning, that David's only concern was the fact that Absalom had died. The extent of their depression is vividly given to us in this passage. And and you have to stop and think about it for a minute. But but the passage says the people snuck into the city, they crept quietly into the city, you know, as if they had been defeated. They came into the city not as as an army had been victorious, but as an army who had fled before their enemy, humiliated in battle. I mean, so opposite is the emotion. From a jubilant high to a totally depressed low, all in a matter of moments as the word came that their king was totally depressed by the loss of his son. So from the true heights of euphoria, David's soldiers plunged plunged into the slough of despond. Their great effort on behalf of their king appeared to be for naught. They had been concerned that David not go with them, because even if they were victorious, if David was dead, it would be for nothing. And, and now they've won the victory, David is preserved, and yet it seems to be for nothing anyway. This was very, very discouraging. The king seemed to ignore their victory, to not share in their excitement. And he focused exclusively upon the death of his son, Absalom. What had been a shock at hearing about the death of his son had turned into such a bout of self-pity that David shut out everyone else. Well, this was more than Joab could take. Good old or bad old Joab, however you want to look at it, ever the pragmatist, never one to feel someone else's pain. (laughs) You know, the person comes, oh, I feel your pain. Joab would never say that. Get over it. It's the only words he knew. And and so he bursts into David's presence. Now, remember, he's his first cousin, so I guess he feels he has some uh, rights that others may not have. And he gives David a tongue lashing. Joab. He's the guy who had killed Absalom. He's the guy who blatantly disobeyed David's command. Who's king here? You see, Joab thinks he knows better than David. He knows the land would be better without Absalom. And so he's willing to take the chance on David's reaction. And yet he dares to come into David's presence and to chastise him for his excessive grief. You know, I, I think Joab would have any problem with a little grief. But in his eyes, David had gone way overboard. Now, of course, there is right on Joab's side here. Joab is right in, in facing David with reality and, and trying to get him to pull himself together enough to show appreciation to these thousands of men who've given their all for him, who've faced death for him. But his method is a bit cruel. Joab, you'll never find Joab really seeking God's help. He could have here though. He could have asked God to to help him nudge David out of his depression to to help him at least get David to do the right thing here. But what he does is he throws a a whole bucket, you know, a verbal bucket of cold water right into David's face. Back up, David! And notice what he says. I mean, these are harsh words to say to a king. By loving those who hate you, by hating those who love you, for you today have today shown that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Joab knew that wasn't true. But he wanted to shock David. And he did. He cut David to the quick. Because in his heart, David knew. He loved his men, he loved his people, but he was just overwhelmed with grief here. David truly cared for his men. And he was grateful for the Herculean task that they had just accomplished on his behalf. The thing we have to remember here, in our psychologically oriented society today where we have, uh, you know, self-help and and other people help and support groups for everything, we, we have to remember that there is a titanic spiritual battle going on here. If Satan can destroy David, he will use any method he can because he knows that the promise is that the house of David will one day produce Messiah. And and so he wants to destroy David and his house any way he possibly can. And and so David is locked in a spiritual warfare. And, and, you know, David may have been so depressed that he wasn't recognizing it too much, but Joab, of course, had no clue whatsoever. Joab didn't know what a spiritual warfare was. You know, everything was was flesh with him and everything was pragmatic with him. He had no spiritual insight whatsoever. But his words, Joab's words in verse 7, are actually wise words where he says, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, (laughs) he used the the name of the Lord here, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. He's telling David, these men have endangered their lives and many have been wounded and some have died on your behalf. And if you show no appreciation, no concern, they're gone. They're gone. They're out of here. And you will have no supporters. Solomon would later put Joab's point very concisely when he would say in Proverbs 14, in a multitude of people is a king's glory but in a dearth of people is a prince's ruin. Well, David was hurt, of course, by Joab's method, but he saw the wisdom of Joab's words, and he presented himself before his men at the city gateway. He cleaned himself up, you know, and washed his face undoubtedly. He went down to express gratitude to his men for the victory that they had won, for the great effort they had put out. And the result of it was that much of the joy that they had originally felt began to return. And the men began to feel that what they had done was worth the effort and the danger that they had exposed themselves to. Let me, let me just um, summarize this in, in a means of application that seems to be true here. I, I think this is a clear warning to us particularly to people who are in spiritual leadership positions that they cannot allow personal tragedy to interfere with the larger work of the kingdom of God for which they are responsible. That doesn't mean, of course, that people in spiritual leadership can't grieve over tragedy, but, but they can't allow it to tear them into, to, to disassociate them from the work they've been called to do got to draw strength from God and know that he has allowed this for some reason. And often the reason that tragedy comes into our lives is to make us stronger and more able to help others who go through similar situations, as we're told in the New Testament. I I think the lesson to all of us is to beware of the enemy's effort to cripple us. He will take a natural, normal, right Emotion and try to take it to an absolute extreme that it will destroy us. He will tempt us to wallow in self-pity, which, of course, is not hard to do. You know? All of us have a lot of pity for ourselves uh, in, in many situations, and that's natural. But we have to not allow the enemy to take it to extremes. Jesus gave us the ultimate example to follow, in that he endured the cross and despised the shame that he might bring the joy of eternal life to us all. So I think for each of us, the lesson here is to draw strength from God in the midst of our our trials and tribulations and tragedies and to come alongside one another, not as Joab did, but as one who would comfort and and give peace and, and prayer for those who are going through hard times. Because the scripture teaches us if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And if that isn't true, then something's wrong with the body. You know, the nerves have been severed. And the nerves, of course, are the nerves of not only of fellowship, but the nerves of prayer. Uh, we're going to pray this morning, as we always do, and this, this is something Lutzer said this morning, and it just rang a bell with me. He said, we should look upon the needs of others as if they were our own needs. Now, that's a very simple statement. But if we really did that, we would really pray and, and our prayers would be prayers of great intensity just like the prayers we pray for ourselves <laughs> because we know how we feel and then we need to realize others feel similarly when they go through trials tribulations, tragedies and difficulties and so if we adopt their needs as our needs then we can pray better and those, those nerves of connection are reattached and the body truly does support its own members. Next week, we'll pick up with the last phrase of verse 8, where it says, now Israel had fled each to his tent. <laughs> How many times is that said in Scripture?